is Molly Full Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, joined as always by Robert Brokamp. Hello. And this week's special guest is Jason Moser. Yay. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, thanks for thanks for being halved. He is a senior <laughs> analyst. We will have him before. We will have you with Motley Fool's million dollar portfolio. He is here to help you talk to your kids about investing because if you don't, they'll learn it on the streets. <laughs> And that is exactly the place where you don't want them to learn. That's right. And we're also going to hear the inspiring story of the world's worst market timer. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. So, I I guess I read something on CNBC or I saw an inspiring, I thought it was an inspiring story of the world's worst market timer ever. <laughs> and this guy's name is Bob. Although Bob doesn't really exist. The hypothetical Bob. Hypothetical Bob is the creation of Ben Carlson. He was a money manager um, and an author. And what Ben did was he created Bob, and Bob had the worst luck. He would always buy and invest in the market right before it would crash. So right at its timing. peak. Impeccable, impeccably bad timing for getting in the market. <laughs> so Bob turned $184,000 over the years. So he invested in 73, 87, 2000, and 2007 into $1.16 million. That's, what? That's horrible. How oh, no, is, wait, that's good. Well, this is good. It's an inspiring story because it goes to show you that the market's going to go up and down. You don't know what it's going to do. But even if you buy, at the worst possible time, right before a crash, you're still going to come out on top. Right. And these are the, th- the stories that are good to hear now. The stock market was down in August. It was not where officially, I think, at some point, we were in a correction territory. So, people are going to be like, okay, is this going to keep going? The lesson here, of course, is you don't know what's going to happen in the short term, but as long as you hold on for many decades, you should be okay. Generally speaking. I was going to say, it seems like bro's getting ready to jump in here with a little Debbie Downer. <laughs> well... <laughs> Well, I think it's important that uh, our hypothetical Bob was holding on to the overall stock market. Um, it does depend on what you're holding and buying. So, that first bear market that he had to endure was uh, 73, 74, was the crash of what then was called the Nifty 50. There was like 50 big American growth companies that you could hold on to forever and you'd do fine. And some of them, that was true Johnson & Johnson, Disney, Walmart, they all turned out fine. There were also other companies that didn't, like Polaroid and Schlitz and Avon. Uh, one was SS Krege, or Krege, which basically <laughs> became Kmart later on, which now is uh, yes. not what it used to be. And then, of course, Simplicity Pattern, the sewing company. That was one of the biggest companies in America, and now it's virtually nothing. And who would have thought? And People would thought? always need clothes, beer, uh, what was the other? Kmart. Kmart. People <laughs> Cheap would stuff. always need these things, and right. yet the companies. Did not succeed. So, if you went back then and just bought those companies and held on, even companies like Xerox, which are still around but have not been great investments at all, then it didn't. It wouldn't have worked out for you. Wouldn't as well. the article then be called the world's worst stock picker? Probably. <laughs> but Probably. I think. I think one good takeaway from the article, though, is in you know to your point about you just don't buy and hold blindly. But the the farther away, the more time we have between us and any given correction or or bear market. The, the the more of an opportunity you have to make money, right? I mean, there there's a lot of time between that that 1970 whatever date that you just presented and something that just happened last year, right? And so I think I think the more time that you have to sort of get past any kind of a correction and, and continue to hold on to whatever you were holding on to, the better those re- returns are going to look look uh, you know as, as more time passes, right? 
Yeah, so he had annualized returns of roughly 9%, which is generally what we say the market's going to do. Right. Long-term average since the 1920s has been about 10%, so he didn't fall too far behind. So even if you buy at the worst time, the point is it's hard to pick stocks, for one. That's not easy. But for two, buy and hold and right. hold and hold. And, right. and hold and hold. Be very diversified and hold. As a reminder, we have Jason Moser with us today. Hello. Hi. He's a senior analyst with Motley Fool's Million Dollar Portfolio, and he's famous, at least with us, for getting his two daughters investing adorably at Absolutely. a very young age. Yep. I think they get the adorable part from their mother. I'm just gonna... <laughs> I agree with you on that, too. Yes. Yes. <laughs> just kidding. Indeed. You're a handsome man. Well, thanks. You are handsome. <laughs> My favorite Jason Moser daughter story is you brought them in to the studio one time to do an episode with them, a little interview with them. And they were like, I don't know, <laughs> seven and eight or something, something like, that. like that. Something like that. And so there's the older one and the younger one. And the younger one looks up at me and she's like, I'm the sassy one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she, she was. And the older one, and I, so I turned to the older one and I was like, well, what are you? And she said, I think she said, I'm the know-it-all. That's probably <laughs> right as well. The sassy one is is the one who's, who's looking a little bit more towards show business as they launch. Line of work, so uh, that that's right in line. So with it's sort a of good thing you got her thing. investing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly, she's got to get money from somewhere. <laughs> no question. All right. Well, before we dig in, Jason, into how you got your kids investing, I want to remind everyone that we have a great interview that we did with Ron Lieber, a columnist with New York Times, about uh, talking to your kids generally about money and budgeting and that kind of stuff. So before you get them investing, check out our Ron Lieber episode from a few months back. It's a good one. Yep, we had fun. Yep, we, we talked about we talked a lot about beer, which <laughs> beer. doesn't make sense <laughs> with now your that kids. I think no, about but hopefully you're intrigued. So Jason, how how did it happen that you got your kids investing? Take me back to that first conversation where well, you talk to them about discounted cash flow sure. and right. absolutely I was plugging them into <laughs> the, the balance Excel sheets spreadsheet. yeah there's actually a little bit of serendipity here it was uh, we as a family my wife and, and, and the girls we were out one day just grabbing a bite to eat and we went to Panera and it, you know we were sitting there eating and I and I just sort of casually mentioned you know we own a little bit of this business and they looked at me with fascination like how in the world is that possible this why isn't your name out front then and so that's what really started the discussion it was just that general idea of of how it worked and then they also just sort of made a connection because it's what I do for a living and I don't know that they really knew exactly what I did for a living other than I worked at a place that let me wear shorts and flip-flops so uh, <laughs> with that said we started just very casually talking about it you know on the rides to and from school and kind of came up with a with a plan it, we're not very hard and fast about the rules here but we typically like to try to invest in something every quarter and uh, and, and just take it from there I mean I think the you know one thing we always say here is that time is the individual investors biggest advantage. And the more time that you can take advantage of, the better off you'll be. And so my father taught me about investing when I was a kid and we would talk about it on, you know, rides to school and whatnot. And so this just seemed like a very natural fit for them uh, to to get started. Sorry, did you say how old they were when you like when so, do you feel a kid is ready to have a conversation about investing? No, now I yeah, it's I I don't want to say we had this big in-depth conversation about teaching them sort of about cash flows and balance sheets and things like that. Uh, but I think that, you know, yeah, first and foremost you have to be able to talk about money. And so I think that my wife and I have always been very 
upfront about talking, uh, you know, about money with them and sort of how uh, money works. We look at our houses as kind of our own little family business, and we sort of, you know, frame things in in that light. And so for them, they understood money. They were about four. I think they were four and five, or close to four and six, uh, when when the Panera trip happened. And and so you know obviously their their understanding was somewhat limited just because of their age, but as they've gotten older, it's it's something that they're very familiar with now, and so it's easy to sort of introduce new concepts to them. And again, I, it's not like I'm talking to them about investing every day, right? I think that's one point is to make sure you're not killing them with this stuff. Just <laughs> when that when the chance you know comes and and you can you know mention something about it or. Or uh, you know you pass by a company and maybe you own shares in that business or something like that. You can mention that, but uh, again, it's all about just getting the conversation started younger rather than later. And and as you said before, man, you don't want them learning this stuff on the streets. <laughs> <laughs> I think part of uh, teaching a kid to be a good investor is that you're really teaching them how businesses work. And even if they never buy a stock, they're going to work for a business, and they need to understand how it makes money and how it spends money. Even if you work for the government, you still have to think about where the money is coming from. And it's funny you say Panera because we were in Panera the other day and the line was so long. So I said to the kids, so like, all right, we own a little piece of this. What would you do if you're owning this? If you own this, what would you do as the manager to come and change this? And like, well, I would move this line here, I would do this, or I'd, you know, the, there's the person, if you order a bagel, they take your money and then they got to go get the bagel. They say, well, there's got to be someone else who can do that. So when you start, it's a whole other way of educating them about businesses in general, and I think it also that helps them think a little bit about what kind of jobs they want in the future. And and also, you also have to acknowledge the fact that they're going to have a job at some point, more than likely. And and we're you going certainly to hope so. <laughs> we're going to encourage them to participate in their company's retirement plan, whatever that may be. So they are going to own stocks in some capacity, right. whether it's through a fund or otherwise. And so just just having that sort of that familiarity, I think, is is a, a great uh, great head start. All right, so Jason, you have three. You probably have many rules of thumb, but we're going to go with just three rules of thumb right now that you kind of live by when it comes to getting your kids. Investing and keeping them investing, and the first one has to do with incentivizing them a bit by encouraging them to invest where they spend. Of course, yeah. Well, I always make the joke that whenever I go to Chipotle, it's a little rewarding just knowing that I'm paying myself. Right? <laughs> I buy a burrito, I get those chips, and I walk away saying I just felt my stock price go up just a little bit. Just a little and bit. and so that is, uh, I think, with kids generally speaking, it's very easy to. Talk with them about consumer-facing businesses because they're seeing those businesses all the time. And so, Whole Foods, for example, is a stock that they own, and it's a store obviously that's right down here from Full HQ. And so, I frequent uh, that particular store to get stuff for dinner all the time. And without fail, they're always thanking me for shopping at their Whole Foods because they feel like they're making a little money in the process. <laughs> and, and that's right. I mean, I, I I do I do explain that in just such a way. Say, listen, shop. Buy stocks in the companies where you are spending your money. Think about why you spend your money there, and then think about, hey, if you're spending your money there, are other people spending their money there? And consequently, they own Nike and Under Armour and Starbucks. Uh, so, so yeah, that's that's uh, first and foremost, and I think they can they can grasp that pretty easily. All right. The second rule of thumb we have is helping to encourage them to be long-term investors. Sure. By asking them one very important question, which well, is: Well, think about that business, and do you think it will be around when you're an adult? And so, you know, when you're a kid, the last thing on your mind is adulthood, and you think it's forever away. 
Eventually, though, it hits you like a punch in the face. Oh. You're responsible for bills and everything else under the sun. Kids included, right? Um, but no, I mean, that's it. Ask, ask yourself, will that business be around? And you know, bro, you were talking about some businesses there that, uh, you know, what was it, Kodak, I think, and Polaroid, and Polaroid, Polaroid Kodak, and, yeah. uh, and I'll tell my Schlitz kids, you know, and, back in the day, you had to go to a store and rent, right? You know, your your VHS and then your DVDs, and every, I, certainly back then, I thought, well, of course, everyone's going to keep wanting to rent movies. I didn't anticipate a Netflix of coming along not. and putting them all out of business. Or gasp at the internet, right? And I mean, I right. talked to my kids about the days when the internet didn't even exist. And I mean, I went to I graduated from college and there was no internet. Like, email was just a novel concept back then. So, they, they can't even, you know, get a grip on the world without internet. And, and it is it is difficult to sometimes think that far ahead because you have to sort of think about what, you know, advancements may, may come during that time. But But the general idea is, you know, you want to find those brands, those names, those businesses that are very well established, and uh, you know, chances are pretty good that people are still going to be buying Starbucks in ten to fifteen years. Yeah, I thought I was still going to be sewing my old clothes, <laughs> my own clothes, but simplicity patterns. And I thought that Schlitz was just, you know, I mean, I, I thought in A college, hey, I, mean, I was beer. drinking Schlitz then, and it's, but man, no, no more, right? Yeah. What can you believe in these days? I don't know. <laughs> Nothing. All right. Uh, so, getting also to talking about how a business makes money. Yep. This is another question your girls have to answer before they're allowed to invest in a company, and that is, do you know how that company makes money? Right. And I'm not looking for them to go into the business model either. I mean, I just want them to give me a basic idea. So I ask them the question about Starbucks. How does Starbucks make money? Well, they sell coffee. Okay. Who do they sell coffee to? Well, they sell it all over the world. Okay. Boom. You pass right there. That passes. That's a passing answer. Chances are pretty good they're not going to really want to go into telling me how Wells Fargo makes money. And and I don't want them to really tell me how. Jason, Wells Fargo I would like makes you money. to tell me how Wells Fargo makes money. Go ahead. How long do we have? They have this machine in the back room. There's a thing called a mortgage. Um, but I think just getting a basic idea of how a business makes money, and and that's again why I think consumer-facing businesses are so so good for them as, at least as starting points because it just involves them selling stuff to people. Yeah. Uh, but but yeah, just a basic idea of how the business makes money. Yeah, Chris Hill likes to point out that. Um, well, I was talking to Chris Hill one time, host of other radio shows here at the Molly. That guy Full. works here, doesn't he? You know I think guy. he does. You know that guy, and uh, he was kind of he kind of rolled his eyes when we were having the conversation <laughs> about getting kids investing because he's like, because people always say Disney, like Disney is such a good starter right. stock for kids, and he's like, do you know how Disney makes money? You know, and and the, you know he goes to explain. Well, they own ESPN. They own. I don't know a million different things. Like it's not just Disney princesses. It's like not. there's no way a kid can understand really how Disney makes money. That's a fair point to a degree. Now I will say my kids own Disney stock, and it was one of the first stocks that they bought. Um, and it's probably done well for them. It has done very well. <laughs> it's done very well. <laughs> it's done very very well. Chris Hill. But what does was, he know? I know that's a good point. <laughs> it was an interesting lesson that we had there because they were able to tell me that you know Disney makes money from. We were at Disney World at the time, and so this kind of resonated. They they charged money for you to go into Disney World, and they sell you all the stuff and blah 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 blah. And I said, okay, boom, that passes. Now, interestingly enough, did you also know that Disney makes money from this, that, and the other? And so, you know, that that was just an interesting sort of way for them to say, oh, okay, so there are other ways that they can make money, and those are businesses that maybe you know could be better because they make their money a number of different ways. Um, but but yeah, to to Chris's point, Disney Disney does make their money a lot of different ways. But that's not a bad thing. I used to teach a class about stock picking for my kids' math classes um, for a couple of years, and I used Coke as an example. And everyone thinks Coke is just a drink, and it's Coke. 
They sell hundreds. It's also a drug. It's also a drug, and that's really where they make their money. And that's how they learn about investing on the streets. It's awful. That's it all goes. It's all about supply and demand. Evil place. Uh, But they they have hundreds of brands all over the world, and I think that was one of the most enlightening things when I would teach this class as a kid to realize it's a global economy, Mm -hmm. um, and that people in different countries do different things, but U.S. companies can benefit that from that, own those companies, and that really we are in a a global economy. Yeah. You've been talking to your kids about investing. Have you gotten any cool investing ideas from them? One of my most lucrative investing ideas came thanks to my kids, as a matter of fact, Allison. Allow me to tell the story if I may. Please do. Um yeah, so you know, we we had uh, had our kids they're very close together, 18 months apart, and you know, as the father of daughters, I mean, I'm an idiot when it comes to clothing these kids. I just don't have the taste. I don't know how to do it. Okay, and and that's okay. I'm I'm fine with that. The teacher knows when Dad dressed them that sure. morning. And you have like, to know. Oh, you have to know your limitations. Your mom had as to go father, into work right? early today, huh? Onesies so I, again today, huh? Yeah, I can thank my <laughs> lovely wife for many things, and she certainly is is very good where it comes to uh, clothing and whatnot. But as as babies, I I discovered the magic of Jimboree. As a father, and and you know you could go online to jimboree.com, and they would have these outfits put together for you, and they would be, you know, you could have like one bottom that would go with like five tops, so you feel like you're getting value there, and so you could just it was very simple, and they were always having a sale, and then they had the gym bucks, which meant you would go back later to spend more money with them, and I thought this is just a phenomenal retailer in every capacity, and it was public at the time. And so I had done a lot of research into the business, and I had come to the conclusion that it was a, it was a worthwhile investment. And so I, you know, proceeded to buy a lot of shares of that stock. And uh, about a year later, it, it was it was bought out by private capital at a very hefty premium to what I paid for it. And so I, I owe that success to my children because I would not have found it otherwise. And you took all that money and you. T- Spent it on even more clothes. I did, as a matter of fact, and that was the point. <laughs> I made. I said, Disney. "Do you understand?" I said, "The money I made on that that investment, I basically have clothed you guys for the rest of your life." Oh, that's awesome! It was wow. very nice, and so you know, it, it, you know, obviously the money I, I've you know reinvested uh, a lot of that money, but but the point remained that it was an investment that paid off, and and in the context of things, I could say, "Listen, we were able to." You know, buy more clothes for you because of that. So it was a very good, good thing. Sounds like a challenge for the Moser girls. See how quickly they can blow through <laughs> Daddy's Jimbery <laughs> cash. Let's, let's not say we did. Baby Prada. <laughs> What's your bottom line piece of advice here before we close up this conversation? My bottom line piece of advice is to figure out whatever you need to do to get started with your kids. If if you have children, you need to start teaching them about money and investing. And it, it all starts with money, right? If you haven't had that money talk with them yet, you need to have that talk. And I think that goes back to the interview that y'all were talking about earlier in the show. Um, but again, I, I mean, time is your buddy here. Time is the individual investor's best friend. And and kids are open to learning about this stuff. You learn more as a child than, than you just can possibly imagine. And, and their brains are just open to absorbing whatever you want to whatever you want to teach them. And if you don't know, find someone who does know. Or you know, talk with talk with us here at the Fool. I mean, we have people. This is investing is our uh, investing is our, our livelihood here, and we love doing it. We love being able to teach it, and it's just something. It's one of the gifts that just keeps on giving for the entire uh, for your entire life. And I would say that you actually don't have to buy individual stocks. You could buy like an S and P five hundred index fund, and Absolutely. a lot of those principles are the same. You own shares of that fund. You own little pieces of all the businesses, or at least the biggest: Exxon, Apple, Microsoft, Google. Um, I think that's important to consider because if let's say you buy three stocks, 
for your kids and they turn out to be the next Polaroid and Schlitz and all this because your kid loves Schlitz. Um, <laughs> they instead could get the lesson that buying stocks is risky and it's a way to lose your money. So I think complementing it with a good index fund is a good idea because then you can say you own basically a piece of the economy. And as long as the economy does well over the long term, you're going to do fine too. And I think that's great advice. And then one way you could even take that a step further is because I mean owning owning an S and P index fund is just that is a surefire way to go. Because over time, 5, 10, 15, 20 years, that line goes up. You're going to do well with that. And then you can even take every once in a while, a quarter or every month, or whatever, take one of those businesses out and just sort of learn about it. You know, it's 500 of really the most relevant businesses in our economy today. And you could just pick one out and say, hey, there's Apple. Let's learn a little bit about Apple and what Apple does. And so you have all sorts of opportunities to learn uh, just, just through investing in an index fund like that. Check it out, kids. <laughs> it's way cooler than what Johnny down the street is peddling. <laughs> Man, let's not even go there. <laughs> oh, they're too young. <laughs> For now. Let's head to the mailbag. Yay. And it's along the same lines of the, what we've been talking about. The question today comes from Scott. Scott says, I am interested in starting a stock portfolio for my daughter to help her get interested in investing early. Yay! I think we can all agree that we're excited about this for you, Scott. I was thinking about a UGMA or a UTMA, and uh, that stands for Uniform Gift to Minors Act or the Uniform Transfers Transfers to Minors Act. Mm -hmm. Um, Could you help whittle the options, whittle through the options, including benefits and downside to each. I read that these accounts could count against her when she's applying for financial aid in college. All right, bro, whittle so, away. All right, so I'm going to cover a few of these accounts. Whenever you're going to be giving away money, whether it's to your kids or anyone else, the three things you want to keep in mind are the goal of the account, the goal of the account, the tax consequences, and who has control of the money. So let's say you're doing this for college. The first count that most people consider is the 529. We've talked about that before. Tax-free growth if it, the money is used for qualified higher education expenses. And Scott does already have a 529 plan. I just didn't read that. Excellent, Excellent Scott. Excellent, Scott. The drawback there, according to his goal at least, is that you cannot buy individual stocks within a 529. Another option then is the Coverdell Education Savings Account, which really doesn't get a lot of attention, but I think it should. You can actually open it up and buy individual stocks, ETFs, mutual funds. The drawbacks are that the contribution limit is low, only $2,000 a year per kid, but still a good place to start. Also, and there are income limitations on who can contribute. So, if you make more than an adjusted gross income of $110,000 if you're single, $220,000 if you're married, you can't contribute. But there's a workaround even if you are, and that is you can just gift the money to the kid and the kid contributes. To the account. So, Coverdell is a good way to do it. And like the 529, it grows tax free if used for qualified higher education expenses. And you can use it for grade school and high school as well for qualified expenses. Now, the other thing that most people look at are the UGMA and the UTMA. UGMA came first. Now, most states have replaced it with the UTMA. Um, and Uniform Transfers to Minor Act. Exactly. It's a custodial account. The kid owns the money, but there is a responsible person, usually a parent, who manages it up until the kid reaches the age of majority, which differs from state to state, but it's like 18 or 21 or 22, something like that. Did you say the age of majority? The age of majority. That's what they call it. Okay. Yes. Um, So, here's the good thing about that. Um, You do have all that investment flexibility. Um, You have control of the money until they reach that age. 
The drawback is once they reach that age, it's their money. So Jason has responsible daughters, so we don't have to worry about that. But some kids do get to a point where they have that money. Will they spend it on something responsible or not? You just kind of have to trust them. Thinking about Jimmy from our Saving for College episode, <laughs> exactly. he was going to be spending it on LARPing armor. That's so. LARPing armor. I feel like um, bros just jinxed me now. My kids are going to go out there and burn it on like a golf cart or something. No. A dune buggy. But there is also, I should I should highlight the, the other great benefit of this is that there are tax benefits. So the first $1,050 of income, capital gains or dividends from that portfolio, tax-free. The next 1050 is are taxed at the kids' rates. So it's a very tax-efficient way to invest as well. Um, but Scott is right in that when you apply for financial aid, the formula, formula factors in assets owned by the kids to a larger extent than if they're owned by other people. So yes, if you have a large UGMA or UTMA or just the kid just owns anything else, colleges expect them to contribute a larger percentage of that. It's probably not a big deal unless this is going to be a huge account. The, the bottom line is that most financial aid people get is in the form of loans anyhow. So I would say not worry about it unless you're going to invest an awful lot or if you really are otherwise a lower income family and you're going to really need aid. So, Jason, what did you do for your girls? Sure, they have a. Uh, they, they each have their own individual account. It's an UTMA because that's what was offered. They just. Uh, I opened their brokerage accounts with Scott Trade, which is where I have uh, my brokerage accounts. And um, so, I mean, I, I took into consideration the you know the, the financial aid implications. And honestly, I mean, this is not an account where we're talking about tens of thousands of dollars being invested every year. I mean, this was more or less an opportunity to sort of add something else along. What they already have in a regular savings account, and they do have 529s, and and so I think the 529 plans have been wonderful. We opened those up when they were born, and then we have just an automatic con- uh, contribution made every month into each of their accounts, and uh, and so this this these investment accounts, these stock accounts, were you know for educational purposes, uh, you know make a little money in the process, and and honestly, when they become of age, I want them to be able to take ownership of it because then they get to make the decision on right. what they're going to do with it. And and far be it from me when they're that age. I mean, I understand even at eighteen, kids think they know it all. We obviously know in hindsight that we did not come even close to knowing anything. But <laughs> they are going to have to learn at some point, and they're going to have to be able to start learning how to make decisions. Uh, you know, thinking with longer timelines in mind. And so my hope is that they will be able to. All the while, while this is going on, they they'll have this experience to draw on and say, "Well, I know that when I was seven, eight, nine, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, this was all going on, and maybe it will give them some, uh, you know, some sort of, sort of inclination to think a bit more long term." But but the ownership the ownership was uh, was part of the plan all along. But it, and it gives them flexibility, right? They have an account they can spend on education or a new house, yeah, or a new car, or. You know whatever else they want to buy, so it's not so limited. In fact, a lot of people actually uh, contribute to retirement accounts for their kids, which you can do as long as the kid has earned income. So they worked at McDonald's for the summer, they made a thousand dollars. You can put a thousand dollars into an IRA, and a lot of parents do it for the kids. But of course, it's got to be used for retirement, or you face taxes and penalties. Um, so that is another good part of the UGMAs and UPMAs, and that you have a lot more flexibility about what you spend the money on. Did you? So you started investing when you were young. I don't know if you did either. Did, did either of you guys come into a large sum of money when you were too young to handle it? Did you blow it on anything stupid like amps or motorcycles? I, I, I didn't. I mean, when I was, I was kind of, I, I was. My dad sort of 
gave me incentive to be somewhat entrepreneurial as a kid. I mean, I mowed lawns, and so I was I was I was a golf rat. I mean, I was you know from from sunup to sundown at the golf course every day. Um, except for when I was at school, obviously. But um, and buy like shiny new clubs. I or did, something. but I mean, so he would he would basically say, "Okay, you you earn the money to pay for half of them, and I'll match the other half." Hmm. And so there was that there was that sense of ownership. You know, I just for whatever reason it stuck when I was a kid. I was more of a saver. You know, I, I owe that to my mom and dad. Yeah. I was not known as someone who saved money. In fact, my mom. There's a song. I'm not going to sing it, but basically it was. <laughs> Give your money to Robert; he'll put it in Kmart's bank. Um, and so, growing up, I was that way. But I did work hard. In fact, I—I I shouldn't say this, but I um, fiddled with my birth certificate so I could work at McDonald's nice. at a younger age than I was allowed to. Um, but when I was very young, my grandmother gave my mom money on each of us, my sisters' behalves. My uncle invested it in a utility, but it did very well. And once I got that money, I put—I put most of it in retirement accounts and stuff like that. So somehow along the line from me being a <laughs> someone that's why Kmart collapsed by the that's way. Right. I stopped being a spender. Yeah. Uh, I don't know, I had some sort of transformation. So it worked out okay. I always want like these torrid stories of uh, wild yeah. abandon and spending. But on this show, I just invite the wrong people, and they say stuff like, oh, "I put it into a retirement account." What about you? Show. What's your do you have your big story? Come on. Miss Nair do well. Got to be something there. Nothing. She's got nothing. I got nothing. She's got yeah. this I've always, grin. I always, I kept this little box under my bed, and I would just put all of my money into that little box, and I would go and I would just count it. <laughs> I was just this happy little miser, and every once in a while I would buy a Barbie or something, but I just had this box of cash, and that was joy enough for me. She was a little Montgomery Burns. I was. <laughs> I was a little Montgomery Burns. <laughs> And that's how you grow up to have a podcast about managing I your guess money. So. <laughs> that's right. Guess so. Lesson for you kids out there. <laughs> All right, that's going to do it for today, kiddos. I want to thank Jason Moser again for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for coming by. That was fun. Uh, this show is was recorded today by Austin, but it's probably going to still be edited by Rick. Not that you guys care. Why do I even bother telling you? Austin. You should though. Rick does a great job. And Austin, I'm sure, is going to do a great job of recording this. Yeah. So. Well, that remains to be seen. Nah, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I've worked with Austin a lot. <laughs> Top notch. Our email is answers at fool.com. For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Fool on. Fool on.